Today's reading comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 8. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preach to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Thank you. Be seated. Well, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to see you this morning. This is actually the gathering my wife Pat and I normally attend, so it's exciting to be with our people uh, in this uh, second gathering this morning. Thank you very much for warmly embracing us as we uh, moved to Vancouver about a year and a half ago. We are uh, moving toward permanent residency, and I took my English proficiency exam Friday afternoon, <laughs> which was great. So I really appreciate you letting me speak this morning, even though I'm still learning to speak Canadian. <clears throat> but it's great to get to share with you this morning, and um, just a delight to be able to open God's Word with you. A man named Marcel Sternberger was a photographer in New York City at the end of World War II. And he tells about a chance meeting on a Brooklyn subway with a man named Bella Poskin. Bella was a law student before the war broke out, and he was put to work very quickly in a German labor battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was taken into custody by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he traveled hundreds of miles across Europe to Debrecen, his home, a large city in eastern Hungary. And when he went to the apartment once occupied by his father and mother, brothers and sisters, he found strangers there. He went upstairs and he went to the apartment where he and his wife had stayed. And he also found strangers there. And they said, we've never heard of your family. He was sad and began walking away and suddenly heard a voice crying out, Paskin Baxi, Paskin Baxi, which means Uncle Paskin. The child running after him was the son of old neighbors of his. So he went to the boy's home and they told him, your whole family is dead. The Nazis took them to Auschwitz. Sternberger notes that Poskin gave up all hope at that point. A few days later, too heartsick to remain any longer in Hungary, he set out on foot again, making his way across border after border to Paris, and then finally immigrated to the United States in October of 1947, just three months before Sternberger met him. Sternberger writes, all the time he had been talking, I kept thinking that somehow his story seemed familiar as he explained all this to me. A young woman whom I met recently at the home of friends had also been from Debrecen. She had been sent to Auschwitz 
From there, she had been transferred to work in a German munitions factory. Her relatives had all been killed in the gas chambers. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here to the United States in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Her story had moved Sternberger so much that he had written down her address and her phone number. And so he fumbled through his things and he finally found his address book and he asked Hoskin, was your wife by chance, was her name Maria? Philip Hoskin turned pale. Yes. How did you know my wife's name? He looked as if he was about to faint. Sternberger said, let's get off the train. So he took his arm and went to a phone booth. Hoskins stood there like a man in a trance while Sternberger dialed the phone number, and it took a long time for someone to answer, but finally there was a woman's voice on the other end of the line. Sternberger writes, when I heard her voice at last, I told her who I was and asked her to describe her husband. She seemed surprised at the question, but gave me a description. And then I asked her where she had lived in Debrecen, and she told me the address. Asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin and I said, did you and your wife live on such and such a street? Yes, Bella exclaimed. He was white as a sheet and trembling. Sternberger told him, be calm. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take the phone and talk to your wife. Bella's life took a dramatic turn, as you can imagine. Those thought dead suddenly were found to be alive. This was staggeringly good news. Now, the passage we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning is really built around the gospel, the good news, if we could translate that word. Paul writes, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. This word gospel was not a religious word in the ancient world to begin with. It was a word that was used simply when you had the announcement of something good that was going to happen or something that had happened. And so if you had been at war with another nation, of course, there was no way to get communication back, but to send a runner, a messenger, a good news person to go back to the city. And you can imagine as they ran up to the city walls, they would be shouting, good news, good news, we won, we won. If you had a baby who had been born, you would send someone to communicate the good news to people who were your relatives in the next city. If you were a merchant and you had sold all of your goods, you would communicate with your business partner and write gospel, good news across the top of the message. We sold everything. All the goods are sold and we did well. Now, you and I love to get good news as well, don't we? In our normal lives, you got the job that you wanted. You passed the English proficiency exam. You're accepted to university, or maybe you communicate with someone by email or a message. Well, the baby's been born. So good news, this term is taken up by the early Christians to describe the amazing good news of what had happened with Jesus. 
in terms of who he was and what he had accomplished on our behalf. They took their cues from Isaiah chapter 40, a prophecy written hundreds of years before the time of Jesus that said there's going to come a time when someone will announce good news to you. And they used this term to describe the message about Jesus. Now, in our passage this morning, what Paul does is he gives a summary of the good news focused around the resurrection of Jesus. And so we might use this opportunity this morning to begin kind of anticipating, thinking toward Easter, which will be coming up in a couple of months. So just let that kind of simmer a bit as we hear the message this morning and as we think about it this week, begin thinking toward Easter. And there are three things that I want us to look at in the passage. The first is that good news is also true news. Secondly, that good news is astonishing news when you stop and think about it. And third, good news is profoundly personal news that has radical implications for our lives in Vancouver in 2020. We're actually going to work our way backwards through the passage. So we're going to begin with verses 5 through 8. The good news is also true news. Hear the word again. In that he, Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, one of the things that was distinct about the early Christian movement, and is really distinct for us as followers of Jesus today, is that our faith is grounded in a historical event that is both very public and very unexpected. It was very public at that time and very unexpected by the apostles themselves. Now, what do I mean when I say that the resurrection of Jesus was unexpected at the time? If you had talked to the disciples after the resurrection, they would have said, I never saw that coming. In fact, in the Gospels, especially in Mark's Gospels, the disciples are kind of the disciples as you're going through the book. Because they just don't clue in to what's going on. And even with the resurrection of Jesus... They did not clue in initially. In Luke chapter 24, verse 11, Luke tells us that the women went to them to announce the resurrection because the women were actually the first witnesses that told about the resurrection. And it says this of the disciples, but these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. They were caught off guard by the resurrection. They didn't clue in as the women had. I find this pattern in my own life. Normally, my wife, Pat, is out ahead of me in terms of discerning what God is doing. And I have to kind of come along and catch up after a few weeks or months. But they just didn't believe. They, they weren't expecting it. Why? Why weren't they expecting it? Jesus had actually told them prior to his death that he was going to rise from the dead and in the text, it says they didn't really understand what he was talking about. Why is that? 
Because at the time, Jewish belief in resurrection was very specific. That resurrection would be something that would happen at the end of the age, at the end of the world, all of God's people would be transformed through resurrection. They would be raised from the dead. Nowhere in any Jewish writing of the ancient world was there the idea that someone kind of in the middle of history would be raised from the dead, would be resurrected. It was counterintuitive to them. They didn't think that's the way things would be done. For the broader Greco-Roman world, it was even worse. You did not want people to rise from the dead. Think zombies, right? The walking dead. You didn't want people to come back and talk to you once they had died. But for Jews, they were not anticipating the resurrection. So how did this counterintuitive news, this thing that they would not have expected, how did it become the very bedrock of the Christian faith? Because as they were marching across the Roman world and proclaiming the good news, people would ask, how do you know this is true? And they would point to the resurrection because God has validated it as true in raising Jesus from the dead. Well, the way that it became the bedrock of the faith is it was also a public historical event. It happened in real space and time. In other words, it was true news. It was true news. The text says that Jesus had appeared to them. It's the same word that is used in 1 John, and John says it this way, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Seeing, hearing, touching, verification as being a real historical event. And so what Paul does in our passage is he describes a whole list of people who actually had seen Jesus raised from the dead after uh, he appeared to them after his resurrection. Peter saw him, Cephas. The 12, those who were the kind of core leaders of the Christian movement. Over 500 people were eyewitnesses of the event, Paul says. And James, Jesus' own brother. James was the eldest of Jesus' younger brothers. If you look at John chapter 7, you find that a week prior to Jesus' death, James did not believe in him. In that passage, it says that Jesus was kind of being egged on by his brothers to go up to the feast and make himself known. And John gives a little explanatory clause that says, because they did not believe in him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet, just a couple of weeks later, James transforms into a person who would become the leader of the Jerusalem church, who would stand before the council of the Jews who had ordered Jesus' death and, and proclaimed to them, he is Lord and God has made him Messiah. 
James himself was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. And Paul, on the Damascus Road. On the Damascus Road, Paul was on his way to the city of Damascus to put people in jail who were followers of Jesus. That was his mission in life at that time. And yet, he met the risen Christ on that road, and it completely transformed him into the greatest missionary of the ancient world. He was transformed because he met the risen Christ. In all, about 550 people were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection in this list. And it wasn't just a mass hallucination of some, time, of, of some type. It was over a matter of weeks. He was seen by different people. In fact, Acts 10.41, one of the apostles says, He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he was raised from the dead. They didn't just see him from a distance and think, well, maybe that's Jesus. They ate and drank with him. Which means that we in our resurrection bodies will be able to eat and drink still, too, which I've, I'm very glad about that. <laughs> a while back, Pat and I um, had come to church here on Sunday morning, and one thing that we do every now and then is we will stop by Van Dusen Gardens on the way home. We'll go and split a wrap and have a nice little lunch, and then we'll walk around the gardens before we head back out to the UBC campus where we live. And we were sitting there by the big plate glass windows after uh, having lunch one day, and all of a sudden this guy walked by out on the patio. If you've been there, you know, they've got the big windows looking out on the patio. And this guy walked by pushing uh, a baby stroller, and I thought, boy, he looks familiar. And it just dawned on me, this is the actor, Rupert Evans, who is in the newer version of Emma. If you're a Jane Austen fan, have you seen the newer version? He's the guy who uh, plays the young fellow. I forget his name. Okay, but anyway, so he's in, he's in Emma, and he's also in Man in the High Castle, right? Uh, so he had been here filming Man in the High Castle in Vancouver, and here he was right outside the window uh, with his family, which was so cool. And, you know, I thought... I'm not going to go up to the guy and ask him for his autograph. So we, we just left him alone, and it seemed like everybody else was too. But I want you to imagine for a minute that we had actually gone up and spoken to him, gotten his autograph, taken a selfie with him. Other people had gathered around, and so we had a number of people there. Just imagine that that was the situation. And then later, I was talking to a friend from UBC and told her about it. I was so excited. to said, hey, I met this actor, and it's a very famous guy. And she said, well... You know, I kind of think that sort of thing is just a matter of private opinion and experience. That really, I'm not sure that that happened, but if it happened for you, that's great. <laughs> I would say, well, actually, it's a matter of public record. There were lots of people who were eyewitnesses. I have a selfie right here. And that's what Paul is saying in this text. He's, this this is kind of is Paul's selfie. He's saying that I saw the resurrected Jesus, and that was the foundation 
of my relationship with him. I experienced it. The good news about Jesus' death and resurrection is true news. It has been confirmed by those who heard. That's a term that was used in courts of law in the ancient world to speak about witnesses who came and they brought evidence that was undeniable. It was just clear. If Jesus Christ really was raised from the dead and really is God who rules over the universe, then there is no more important news in the world. It changes everything about how you and I ought to think about what it means to live in Vancouver in 2020. If it's true, if it is true news, it just changes everything. And that's the testimony that Paul is bringing to us this morning. Well, the news is not only true news, but it's also astonishing news if you stop and think about it. I mean, astonishing He writes in verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So let's clarify just for a moment what we mean by resurrection. What, What do Christians mean when we're talking about resurrection, that the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our faith. Well, what it's talking about there is not simply resuscitation. So in Jesus' ministry, there were times that he raised people from the dead. So they were dead, they really were dead, and he brings them back to life. But those people are going to grow old, and they eventually died, right? So Lazarus and uh, Jairus' daughter and these other folks they grew old and they died. So they were still mortal, right? That is what you would call resuscitation. They were brought back to life and eventually lived, you know, they lived normal human lives and they would eventually die. That's not what we mean by resurrection. Resurrection is an idea about transformation of us into a higher form of existence. That our bodies are changed from mortal to immortal. That the limitations we would normally face with death and other things, those limitations are torn down so that we are moved into a higher form of existence. And it seems like some of the stuff that we're going to be able to do, if you look at the passages about Jesus' resurrection and his encounter with the disciples, some of the stuff that we're going to do is going to be pretty cool. Because... You know, there's a locked room that the disciples in, and all of a sudden Jesus is there with them. So I don't know if that means he can just kind of go through walls. In the ascension, he flies. I'm really hopeful about that. I think that would be so awesome to be able to fly. I wonder if at times our uh, kind of being enamored with superhero movies is what's going on there is we really have this sense as as human beings that we should be able to do more then we can. We should be able to transcend our limitations, right? Maybe it's a longing for resurrection, and we don't know it. But the idea of resurrection is that we will move to a higher plane of existence. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory writes, The dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw them, you would be strongly tempted to worship them. 
If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. If you're astounded by that idea, if you're sitting there going, yeah, right, join the crowd. It's astonishing to think that this is the future of God's people. When Paul is giving a testimony before King Agrippa and the governor Festus in the book of Acts in chapter 26, he writes, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. That's us. And this, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense and said, you are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. Some of my students feel like that as well. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and it's reasonable. Earlier in the passage, he had, he had said, why should any of you consider, consider it incredible that God raises the dead? The God who had the ability to knit these bodies of ours together as they are, which is a pretty miraculous thing. The human body is amazing. Why would that God not be able to transform these bodies into something higher? The Lord of life who called all of life out of nothing, who knit the sinews of our bodies, could he not knit them together in a resurrection body? The New Testament says that's exactly what he's going to do. It is astonishing, but think of all the scientific discoveries in history that initially were considered crazy by scientists today. That the earth is round, not flat. That the earth revolves around the sun. Louis Pasteur's idea that germs are the phenomena behind disease from the mid-19th century. 100 years ago, plate tectonics, the theory that the continents are adrift, was considered pseudoscience. And now we just take it as fact of science. Could it be that we simply are not advanced enough as, hu as a human race to understand how God might transform human beings by the exertion of his power that he used in creating the world and in raising Jesus from the dead? It should astound us that this is the way our rescue from spiritual death would be accomplished. It is astounding as a truth. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, a little bit later in our passage, Paul describes Jesus and his resurrection as the first fruits. And that's an Old Testament concept about you bring the first fruits in. But I want you to think about an analogy that we can identify with. I love the fact that we have blueberry fields all around us here in Vancouver. Pat and I had to run a, an errand yesterday afternoon down to uh, Washington State, and we passed all of those beautiful blueberry fields that are down there. And when we first built our house about 20 years ago in Tennessee, 
The first thing I did in the backyard is I defined a garden area by putting 18 blueberry bushes in a semicircle around our backyard. And through the years, those blueberry bushes grew up. Some years, we got over 60 gallons of blueberries off of those bushes. And we would get to about the second week in June, and I often in the morning would go out and I would walk the yard and go around our pond, which was in our front yard. Real estate was a little bit different in Tennessee than it is here in Vancouver. <laughs> and I would come around the blueberry bushes, and normally about the second week in June, I would glance over at the bushes, and one of those berries that had been kind of pinkish blue had all of a sudden turned into a distinct blue and it was ripe. And I would pick that blueberry, and I wish I could tell you I would go in and say to my wife, here is the first blueberry of the year. But that's not what I would do. Normally I would just, boy, I would eat that blueberry. It was great. <laughs> it was great. But that first blueberry, what is it doing? It is heralding that the crop is going to be coming in really soon. And Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection in that he is the first one to go through the process of dying and then experiencing that transformation. He is the first fruit that says this is exactly what's going to happen to those of us who are followers of Christ. And it, it is astonishing, it's mind-blowing, and we really need to have a renewal of, of a sense of wonder about this. Ben Patterson is a guy who tells a story about a missionary who had gone into Southeast Asia to the deep jungles of Southeast Asia where people had never heard about Jesus. They had never even seen a movie of any kind. And a missionary took this movie, the Jesus film, into show to this tribe and set it up and had the screen and everything. And you can imagine how it felt for these people who had never heard about Jesus before to see this good man who healed the sick and was adored by children, but who then was held without trial and beaten by jeering soldiers. As they watched this, the people came unglued. They stood up and they began to shout at the cruel men on the screen, demanding that the outrage stop. And when nothing happened, they attacked the missionary running the projector. Perhaps he was responsible for this injustice. He was forced to stop the film and to explain that the story wasn't over yet, that there was more. So they settled back on the ground, holding their emotions in check, and then came the crucifixion. Again, the people could not hold back. They began to weep and wail and sh shout with grief. And then the film had to be stopped again. The missionary again tried to calm them down, explaining the story isn't over yet. There's more. So they composed themselves and they settled back on the ground to see what would happen next. Well, what happened next was the resurrection. And this time, pandemonium broke out, but for a different reason. The gathering had spontaneously erupted into a party the noise was of jubilation. It was deafening. The people were dancing and slapping each other on the back. Christ had risen. Again, the missionary had to shut off the projector, but this time he did not tell them to calm down because everything that was supposed to happen in the story and everything that was happening in their lives was exactly as it should be. 
They were overwhelmed with the glory of the resurrection of Christ. They understood that it had implications for their own lives. So the good news is true news. It is astonishing news. But then finally, it, all, it is also personal news. Notice the personal pronouns in the first two verses of the passage. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The death and resurrection of Jesus may be true. These events may be astonishing. But ultimately, it comes to each one of us as much more than information. It comes as invitation. Notice Paul said that he had preached to them. The verb that is used here is a sister word for the word we've been talking about, the gospel or good news. It's really, if you translate it very woodenly and badly here, he would be saying the good news with which I good newsed you. It means to announce the good news. So when Paul came to Corinth, what he did is he said, in essence, folks, I have an announcement to make. Jesus has been shown to be the true Lord of the universe, and he will give life to those who commit themselves to him. You can be decisively forgiven, and you can have the life that God wants you to have forever. And at this announcement of the good news, Paul says that the Corinthians responded in three ways. And these three ways can parallel our experience as you and I respond to the good news even this morning. First, he says they received the message and embraced it. They received the message. Pat and I have been married for 32 years. Just keeps getting better, which is awesome. But I remember when I asked her to marry me, like it was yesterday, we got engaged on the Riverwalk in San Antonio, Texas. Very romantic spot. And in essence, what I did is I announced to her what I hoped would be good news to her, that I wanted to marry her. We had not talked about marriage to this point. And she received it. In essence, she said, I'm in. Yes, miracles happen. <laughs> she said, I trust you. I will commit myself to you, to having this relationship with you for the rest of our lives. And in essence, that's what we do when we receive the gospel. We say to God, I trust you. And I will commit my life to you. The second thing Paul says happened with them is that this is the gospel in which they stand. In which they stand. What this means is that they had gone public with their relationship with Jesus. They had been established. In, in, in essence, they had stood with the church and, sa and said, we are a part of this group of people who live for God in the world. They were standing in the gospel in that sense. A number of years ago, I was teaching a class in Nazareth in Israel. 
and half the class were Jewish pastors and half the class were Arab pastors. So they were all believers, all in this class, loving each other. It was amazingly chaotic. It was wonderful. It was very Middle Eastern, if you've ever been to the Middle East. So we had dual translation going on in Hebrew and uh, Arabic, and people were just talking across the class to each other. It was just awesome. It was amazing. And one night, I went down to um, kind of the, the entryway of the hotel, and my friend Arnie, who's an Arab guy who grew up in Nazareth, said, would you like to get a tour, a walking tour of Nazareth tonight? He said, about 9 o'clock tonight after everything is over, I could take you on a walking tour through the streets of Nazareth. And we could go by Mary's Well and go down to the Basilica of the Annunciation, which is the traditional home of Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And I said, that would, be, that would be awesome if you could do that. So when we were leaving the hotel to go on our walk, there were three Jewish guys who were there who were also in our group, and they asked us what we were doing. And we said, well, why don't you guys come on? So, so they went with us. So an Arab guy, three Jewish guys, and an American went out into the streets of Nazareth. That sounds like a beginning of a joke, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> but we, we went through all these dark back alleys in Nazareth, and it was, it was great. And we made our way down to the Basilica, and we got to the Basilica, and as we were standing outside the Basilica, which was closed, there were two older Arab men and a young woman walking up the street toward us, and they came up to us, and one of them was a trained tour guide. You have to go to, to uh, school for about two years in Israel to be an official licensed tour guide, and he had done that. So he spontaneously just gave us a wonderful history of the basilica and explained why you had different churches that met inside and all of this. And we got to the end of kind of his presentation and the other Arab man turned to Arnie and he said, you know, you're Arab and these three guys are Jewish. What's up with that? He wasn't offended or anything. He was just, he was genuinely curious. And without missing a beat, without looking at each other, all four of them, the Arab guy and the three Jewish guys, all said, it's because of Yeshua. Jesus. And they just spontaneously took a stand publicly together in the name of Yeshua. That's what it means to take a stand, to be the people of God who are identifying with God's people in Christ. But then the third thing that he says that happened with them is by which you are being saved. It's present tense. It's talking about something that is ongoing. In the New Testament, J.I. Packer says, we have salvation as a past, a present, and a future reality. In the past, when you come to faith in Christ, you are saved from the penalty of sin. When you come into that relationship, God decisive, decisively forgives you for your sins. In the present, Packer says, we are being saved from the power of sin. As the Holy Spirit lives in our lives and continues to grow us and, and develop us, we are in the process of being saved from the power of sin. And in the future, when Christ returns, we will be transformed in our resurrection bodies and saved from the very presence of sin. Of course, if this is true, boy, it has great implications for us today in Vancouver. 
N.T. Wright says the resurrection is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of the resurrection is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now invited to belong to it. If you experience the gospel, you're not just experiencing it in your past, you're experiencing it right now through your relationship with God in Christ. Because the resurrection is true and astonishing and personal, you and I are invited to be involved in what God is doing in the world. Let that sink in. You and I are invited to be involved in what God is doing in the world. Will you hear the good news today and respond to it? Will you hear that good news and come and stand together? Can we do that together? Will you and I hear that good news and be saved from the penalty, the power, and eventually the presence of sin because of resurrection? Back to my story on Bella Paskin. He nodded his head in mute mute bewilderment, his eyes bright with tears. He took the receiver, listened a moment to his wife's voice, and then he cried suddenly, This is Bella! This is Bella! And he began to mumble hysterically, seeing that the poor fellow was so excited he couldn't talk coherently. I took the receiver from his shaking hands. Stay where you are, I told Maria, who also sounded hysterical. I am sending your husband to you. We will be there in a few minutes. Bella was crying like a baby and saying over and over again, it is my wife. I go to my wife. He responded to the good news by moving on it. And that's the call to us this morning. Will you stand with me, please? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.